This is the EPLOG audio experience. How do you chart your career trajectory in a country and a culture that you weren't born in? And as teams and organizations become global, how can you truly deal with different cultures and multicultural teams? You're listening to Voice of Achievers with me, Yashika. We continue the People and HR series, highlighting building cultural intelligence, working and managing global teams with trust as a foundation. And it's a pleasure to have someone who's truly lived the experience and built an organization that worked towards these causes. Our guest today is Jill Sheldekar, an intercultural practitioner who's been helping individuals and organizations develop cultural intelligence for nearly a decade now. Having worked and lived across three continents, Jill truly understands intercultural differences and has developed programs for leadership development, keeping cultural diversity at the core. A certified cultural facilitator and trainer, Jill has worked with the Australian Admin Services in Melbourne, ICQ Global in the UK, and is currently founder director at Ethnosynth, a coaching and leadership development organization based in Pune, supporting companies to build culturally diverse work environments. The interesting part, however, is she came to India and never wanted to go back. So lovely to have you on the show. Welcome, Jill. Thank you so much and thank you for the opportunity to be here. Jill, can you define, can we begin by the definition of cultural intelligence for us? Why is it important for people? It's funny you ask this question to start because I just got off a call with a whole bunch of interculturalists from across the world and we were in a big argument as to <laughs> what is culture um, and what is cultural intelligence. So that itself should tell you that it is a very complex idea. Um, it means different things to different people. People will say things like our value system, right. our traditions, music, language, uh, the things our parents taught us. And in many ways, they are correct. Yeah. These things are definitely closely related to this overcompassing kind of word that we use when we say culture. A more simplistic uh, version and a more, you can say, universal version when we talk about culture is not just rituals and traditions and music and art, but it really is the software of the mind. Mm -hmm. So it's beyond what we what we do, but it really starts in our in our subconscious. So it's a combination of things we have absorbed from our environment. There's a transgenerational piece to it as well that gets kind of passed down from our ancestors. And more than anything, it answers a very simple question, why we do the things that we do. Mm -hmm. And if I take that into a workplace environment, again, one of the most simple uh, definitions of culture is, what is culture? Culture is the way we do things around here. So notice the two important words, we 
Hmm. There will always be an element of group. Culture is something that is shared among uh, a group of people, a group of individuals. One person, in a sense, born on a deserted island doesn't have culture. It does need to be shared in terms of its concept. Um, so we, this is how we do things around here. So where is here? And so we talk a lot about culture in terms of our place, our geography, our nationality, our ethnicity, our family, our workplace culture. So however you define that here, it becomes important to, to understand the way we do things around here. You mentioned we and you mentioned belongingness. Now, when we have people, um, particularly young people, looking out and charting their career paths. You have been one who did and when you did, it wasn't in a country and a culture that you were born in. Now mm -hmm. when you begin to think about your career path in a different culture, in a different country, how does the we and the belongingness change and how difficult is it to chart a career path in a different culture? This is a really interesting question. And if I go back to when I was younger and a child in school, but I never thought much beyond my, my school and my high school. So I'm a first generation college student. Neither of my parents went to university. So this idea of a career trajectory, which by the way, is not uncommon in the United States. <laughs> I know in India to, to say that education was not a core value in your family growing up is very odd, um, but actually that's quite common, quite common in the United States. Um, so as a young person, I didn't have any such idea. My father was an entrepreneur very good salesperson, very good people person. And so he ran a very successful business. And I used to work um, in his warehouse doing inventory and, and doing small business related tasks and activities right from the age of 11, 12 and 13. So the idea again of having this trajectory or carrying the weight of my parents' expectations, which I see very often in, in India, was something I never experienced. Yeah. Um, and I moved to India when I was 16 years old. I graduated from high school or 12 um, and I moved to India to do social work. I had no uh, you can say aspirations to go to college. Um, mm -hmm. I had no idea with regard to really what my career was going to be at that point. I ended up needing a visa, therefore I got a student visa and ended up at Ferguson College and decided, you know, maybe I should pursue higher education. In the long run, it would probably be a good idea. Yeah, okay. <laughs> when you move into a different country, how do you embrace cultural differences as a professional? How do you mm -hmm. make yourself comfortable and find the sense of belongingness? Again, as a young person, I think that I did feel a little bit of discomfort or slight disconnect. So I grew up in a very homogenous culture. Um, it was almost all Caucasian or almost all white middle class suburban area in Phoenix, Arizona. So when you talk about we and the concept of belonging and moving to a new culture and a new country, to be honest, there was something that was slightly amiss right from my childhood. I didn't necessarily feel like I belonged in, right. the, in the community that I was born and brought up in. And so when I came to India, um, it was a really undescribable experience. Mm. It was sort of like I landed here and I just stepped off the airplane and I felt this overwhelming sense of being welcomed home. Lovely. 
I cannot really describe it. My my mother said that perhaps it's like a mother's embrace. You know, when I would talk to her about so it, beautiful. she was like, how you feel safe and secure in the womb. Yeah. This is how I felt when I landed in India. So I have no practical answer <laughs> to your question. Um, I just ha- I felt an automatic sense of of belonging. Now, have I felt the extreme opposite in India? Yes, uh, I have been uh, subject to feeling like an outsider or purposefully been um, excluded in a sense because of my uh, non-Indianness for for obvious reasons. Um, even being married to an Indian, even speaking Marathi, um, these these things are my attempts to to honor the culture which I've chosen to live in mm-hmm. and to. Kind of enhance my ability to belong in different spaces living in Maharashtra but uh, you know it hasn't always been a warm embrace but do you think that one work, needs to do you think one needs to really take that step to ensure that they belong like you said you know uh, learning the local language in the city there that you're in the state that you're in does me- taking those steps help I feel on a personal level to some extent to develop that kind of intimacy there is a need for some amount of assimilation and this doesn't mean that you have to uh, you know create any kind of hierarchy of, of values or I don't mean that you have to lose your own identity or separate yourself in order to belong mm-hmm. um, but I would I would say that on a personal level there is to some extent a kind of balancing act that happens um when you when you want to kind of be a part of the culture but if i take work culture examples i find that really fascinating because as you know india is one of the most if not the most diverse countries on the planet right and so i don't think that in such cases especially in work environments we don't need to assimilate to a particular culture to feel that sense of belonging um it's about your attitude your awareness of your own cultural style and then creating a space where everyone can bring their own language they can bring their own customs and ways of being and you can really celebrate that diversity and see it as a strength talking of workplace culture tell us you know now that we've uh, we've become uh, global so to say post covid in the way teams and organizations function how does one actually build a multicultural team jill what are mm-hmm. what are the advantages the disadvantages and what are the steps that one can take as a leader to build a multicultural team that is close knit First things first, multicultural teams have been around since the 1960s and it's been uh, there have been some interesting changes though. Yeah. So since the pandemic there's been some really interesting trends um that have sort of redefined our definitions of multicultural and cross-cultural. I mean we've embraced it a lot more than we did uh intercultural. Yes. Yeah, so even the definitions we used to call it cross culture and then it became multicultural and now it's intercultural. Right, right. <laughs> so so yes, so there's an evolution or a maturity if if you want to call it that. What's been interesting for me. So I've been doing this work for about 18 years now. And initially when it came to advising multicultural cross-cultural teams, there was a lot of emphasis on coming together, defining one way and everyone getting on board. And so in order to belong, you did have to adjust or assimilate. Um and what what has happened over the course of of the last decade or so is that there's been a huge shift 
and a huge level of awareness and awakening in our efforts to get along, you know, our desire to minimize difference, we have actually removed all of the value that can come from diverse ways of thinking. You know, a lot of the multinationals I work with, for example, provide products and services to the entire world. Right. So why would you want to have people in an R&D team that think that with no cognitive diversity, right. you know, and only think in one way. So there's been a huge shift in the last 10 to 12 years to kind of find ways to create inclusive spaces that don't minimize difference, but actually leverage um, cultural differences. But as your question posed, there are advantages and, and disadvantages. So I can tell you a quick story. There's one one multinational company that I've been working with for quite a long time. Um, and at one point I had the opportunity to work with very uh, a very large number of their senior leaders, you know, one or two steps down from the sea level. Um, and so we went and investigated things like engagement scores and all that boring stuff. And um, we found that there were some teams that had very high scores and high productivity and other things right. like that. Um, and some that didn't. Um, and, and even with regard to your point about trust, you know, mm -hmm. there were some teams that where the trust level was very high and some teams where the trust level was was not very high. Um, and there was one particular team I'll never forget. I pulled it up and I was looking at it and I noticed something familiar about the names. And I thought, oh, I know this guy. You know, he's a really nice guy. He's, you know, a Tamil guy from Tamil Nadu, etc. And I looked at the names and I'm like, all 12 of his team members are also from Tamil Nadu. Oh. <laughs> this is really interesting because this entire organization has at least 12 to 15 different ethnic groups within India um, and even some international. Um, and so we, we spoke and we discussed and we understood that a lot of the hiring came from the same college that he had gone to True. back in the day and all this, all this good stuff. We know, we know it's quite common actually. Um, when we looked at the number of patents that had been filed out of that team, when we looked at you know different levels of ways of measuring productivity, innovation, what they call in their organization as first time right delivery, you know we started to look at some of those metrics. We found that his team, which is a homogenous team, hmm. very similar, high levels of trust, high levels of engagement, everyone's happy, you yeah. know everyone gets along, but also all men of the same age, from the same background. You know? yes, yes. Um, and what we saw with their scores with the, was that they were average. And some of the teams that had maybe lower levels of engagement or maybe had an issue with trust where you had higher le levels of diversity um, were scoring a mixed result. Some of them were slightly less productive or agile, innovative, and some were slightly more. The teams that were doing exceptionally well had leaders that were extremely inclusive. And so we have we have real you know research and data that proves this to be true. But I remember when I saw that data, I was like, I have real life evidence to this exact point. It is very, very true. So one of the advantages of having a diverse team, even when it's difficult and even when we struggle to create you know cohesiveness or we might struggle to build trust when there's a lot of uh, potential for conflict and misunderstanding yeah. is that when those teams do come together and when they can use that diversity and see it as a strength um, when you avoid those those practices um, and you create that inclusive space you can perform at a much 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 higher level uh, you talk about trust and uh, when we're building trust and when we're looking at building trust in a diverse team like this, especially with multicultural differences, what are the two steps that you suggest that uh, managers, people managers can take in order to build trust in a diverse team? 
The first most important factor is an extremely high level of self-awareness. <clears throat> so most of the bias, most of the office favoritism, most of the issues that a leader will face with regard to creating that inclusive space starts right with self yeah. and self-awareness. Mm -hmm. This is a really hard pill to swallow. None of us want to think about ourselves as yeah. having uh, biases or yeah, being unfair in the way we make decisions. Some may be subconscious, uh, actually. Most of them are. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's my point. The vast majority are what we call implicit bias or unconscious bias. And so it's really important to have this kind of attitude in your own work to be consistently paying attention to your own behaviors, subtle things, our tone of voice, our body language. This could be what we call a microaggression, these little, little things, a small joke that we pass off, a preference for a restaurant that, you know, maybe doesn't serve pure vegetarian food. Whatever it is, there are these little, little things that we do that uh, reveal to some extent our biases. Um, and we have to really, you know, look in the mirror really deeply and understand where our own preferences lie. And let me clarify, beyond the obvious things like sexism and racism and all the isms, there are a lot of other biases that are really important to pay attention to. There's this concept of visible and invisible diversity. When I look at a person's team, I can see the visible aspects of diversity. I can see that there are different ethnicities pre present in this group, people of different ages and different genders or different heights or body types, you know, there's, there's all kinds of presence of visible diversity. And this is what corporations spend a lot of money doing, trying to get more women into the organization, yeah. trying to create intergenerational teams, they, all of this visible diversity. And then at the end of the day, they realize that they have not taken into consideration the invisible factors of diversity, which are things based on decision-making styles and, again, more cognitive cognitive differences, personality types. Um, and this is where, again, the real, real value can come from. Yeah. So how we appear on the outside versus the way we are on the inside. And so this is why a leader really needs to understand their own working style preference to make sure that they're not unintentionally creating more opportunity for people who think like them, not look like them. People who think like them, people who do things, you know, similar to the way that they do things, which is a very natural thing that happens in an office environment to look up to your boss and to want to emulate yeah. or model their behavior. And, you know, you're making it hard because we have six to 10 things that you can do, but let me choose my favorite, my yeah. favorite one for the second one. My favorite one is, is to cultivate an attitude of best intentions. Okay. And what I mean to say is that as a leader and within your team, everyone needs to start from a place of assuming good intentions. So for example, I'm doing some work such and such, and I see some someone is calling me, someone from my team, and immediately my head explodes. What time of day is it? What kind of, this person thinks it's acceptable, it's respectful to call me at this time of day. Like some, some action or behavior has triggered me and has started to create this pattern. Um, because in my understanding, in my preference, in my culture, this is unacceptable behavior. Right. We start with good intentions. So start with a playful curiosity, if you will. 
person is calling me. They're from the office. Why is this person calling me? It must be something really, really, really important. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I take the call. At least I'm minimizing my reaction to some extent. Now, once you know, once you get on the call and you start to, okay, was it something that was really important? What was going on? Is there a need? Wasn't there a need, et cetera? At least you're in a more neutral state to yeah. assess the situation. Um, so you leave aside that, you assume good intentions and you go into that situation. Now, sometimes you're gonna have a learning opportunity. Okay, wow. In so many places across the world, there's a likelihood that people are in touch with each other outside of standard work off work office hours. If this is something which is not acceptable to you, what we call our core inflex, it's in violation of your core. You cannot flex. Then you can have an open conversation. Uh, we don't go in with those intentions, but sometimes the reactions that we have to other people's behavior can can come from our core values. Right. So this is where I would sit across from this person, perhaps in a meeting or even maybe after that phone call and say, you know, the other day or earlier you called me, this was something that was, you know, really difficult for me. Can you help me understand why that happened? How can we prevent it from happening again? So you go with a, a playful curiosity to understand what is driving that behavior and how can I assess it and how can I either flex if you're going to flex um, or how if it's something which is really against my core values, then I'll have a, a constructive conversation with that person. A leader has to model going in with good intentions. Um, and it, I've seen this work really, really well in, in large intercultural teams where you might have the entire spectrum of diversity, for example, in terms of how people manage work and relationships. Yeah. Instead of getting triggered and coming with, as you said, that emotional response, assume good intentions and go in with a playful and curious kind of approach yeah. to identify yeah. what happened. Does this mean that you completely, you know, you accept the behavior or you allow something which is which is against your core value system? No, this is not what we're saying. But from the starting point to have that constructive conversation, you do have to at least assume good intentions from the start. So this is one of my favorite strategies for creating inclusive spaces. Um, and leaders have found it to be quite, quite effective. You know, uh, I want to know, is it more challenging in a multicultural environment to deal with conflicts? Absolutely. <laughs> this is one of the, I think trust and conflict are my two favorite things to, to talk about because they're so incredibly different across cultures. And what I find with certain audiences, and particularly if I take one particular company I work with, I remember one Indian executive coming up to me after the session and saying, <clears throat> after a full day long session of talking about these exact things, this person came up to me and said, um, Jill, so I love the session, it was great. And I understand, and I thought that was really interesting, all of the different strategies for managing conflict, but how can we prevent it? And <laughs> I, I remember I was smiling and I said, but the point is conflict. The point is to have conflict because conflict is inherently good. Yeah. And this person was looking at me like, what is this woman going on about? What do you mean it's good? No, conflict must be avoided. We must avoid it. Conflict is bad. And of course, we know where that comes from. In, a, in, in the sense of a, a values and a cultural diversity, there are many cultures that strive for harmony, right. that put value on the collective yeah. understanding and even, even oppress or suppress individual thoughts and viewpoints right. um, as a kind of sacrifice for the greater good. 
But in multicultural teams, the first point is attitude towards conflict. Yeah. Because I can give you a million strategies, but if your attitude towards conflict, if you're not on the same page in a multicultural team, you don't see conflict in, in a similar way. You don't see its uses, yeah. I would say. Um, then it's going to be very, very difficult for that team to do to do anything or to to mediate that conflict. How do we use it? Do we use it to make an idea better? Can we separate the person from the problem? Can we separate the person from the idea and think about it objectively, if you will? Um, in what ways do we need to be sensitive to how people get attached to those ideas? Are there ways that we can manage our communication? So. So again, what I will see sometimes is what I call an invisible hierarchy, um, and or people will use this context of global professionalism that this is how it is. You know, in, in a global professional would do it this way. I think it's really important, again, as a leader, to genuinely know the members of your team, understand their working style preferences and their approaches to conflict, and then have the expectation that everyone is going to have to make some small adjustments. Yeah. So as I mentioned, some members of the team will need to adjust their communication style to reduce the kind of intimidation or the overly direct, blunt, difficult kind of language that might be used. There could be some that have to tone down the emotion. There are some cultures that use a lot of emotion in their communication. And even if they're not very direct, you know, when a conflict has happened and suddenly it's emotionally charged, it becomes more difficult for certain cultures to manage that conflict. Um, the one that I work with most in the Indian context is, again, separating the person from the idea. Lovely. So people tend to, to really lovely. attach themselves yeah. to something. And so they have to understand that when when feedback or constructive criticism comes, it's not about you, but it's about the idea or the pro or or the situation, and how taking those small pieces of input can actually enhance the overall idea. You know, give us one uh, and your favorite aspect or tip. Your favorite tip in order to build culture and with multicultural you know, differences, a team remotely. Managing teams remotely. So it's really, really difficult to give you, but I'll give you, I'll give you one. I'll give you one. And again, because in, in the intercultural space, we literally customize everything based on our target audience. So for example, yeah. if I'm working with a group from Silicon Valley and we're doing on managing teams remotely, the advice I give them will look totally different than the advice that I give a team, let's say in Tokyo or in Hong Kong True. or in Dhabi. <laughs> nice. So if I had to choose one, it's, it's so much in our mind. You know, there, and there's a practical, of course, there, there's things we do with our hands and our computer mouses and our decks and our presentations and our communication style. But so much of it is actually in our mind. So here's a tip. The tip is, is remove this idea of distance in the first place. Yeah. It's what we call perceived distance. When I think about my team, so I've got 12 team members that sit, let's say in Shanghai, for example, the perceived distance is so enormous. I don't know how to pronounce their names correctly. I don't know what they eat for breakfast. I don't know if they're married or not married. I don't know if this is their forever job or this is just, you know, a time pass job until they get to the next company. Anything, I don't know what's important to them. I don't know what wakes them up in the morning. I don't know. So all of these kind of, these, these unknowns create this enormous Pressure. divide, yeah. Yeah. this perceived distance between 
the team member sitting in South Asia and India or the team member who's sitting in Shanghai or New York for that matter, wherever they are. There's this huge, huge, huge kind of gap and a lot of unknowns. Honestly, <laughs> it's an illusion. Yeah. It really, really is an illusion. When you get to know your team members, even just a few of those unknowns that I mentioned, you will realize that even though we are very, very different, but at the end of the day, what we really, really want is very similar. Yeah. Everyone wants to come to the workplace and feel safe. Yeah. Everyone wants to feel physically safe and psychologically, you know, psychological safety is important. People want to feel valued. People want to feel like what they do matters, even if it's to a small group of people and even if it's to themselves, it matters to them or it matters to their immediate family, yeah. but that it has value. Yeah. People want to feel like they are appreciated. Yeah. Uh, people want to feel a sense of connection. But the underlying driving force is very, very similar. So there is this concept of distance and this kind of almost a fear, if you will, a mm. fear or an intimidation or a hesitation or even a, just a dislike. Like I've I've heard in, you know certain international team members be like, oh God, this meeting on Friday, you know, has this team from so and so, and I'm like. You know, what is it? It's like there's an ease of working with people who look like us, who talk like us and who act like us. Yeah. There's a certain amount of comfort and ease. Yeah. And so sometimes it's even just a discomfort that comes from that perceived challenge and difference and distance. <laughs> so first things first is to remove this idea, remove the illusion of distance. Yeah. And so try to think about it as if all of your team members are in the next cabin or in the next cubicle lovely and then i usually give a huge long list of practical things you can do to remove that perceived distance which is like virtual um you know baby showers and um, things like what's called a coffee uh, a virtual coffee break or virtual coffee time so this is where a leader or manager will set aside let's say 20 to 30 minutes once every two weeks and everyone from the team is invited to come on to a zoom call and be on video with a drink of their choice lovely and the rule is is you're not allowed to talk about work, work. yeah um, profile slides can be really fun and fascinating uh, I know in India, it's quite common for people to be in com in work-related WhatsApp groups, but this is not something which is so common outside of uh, outside of Asia. And so, a lot of times, like the sharing of like personal photographs or weekend weekend activities and things, is not very common in, in other cultures. So, creating a kind of platform where you drag and drop pictures, or what we call a virtual, uh, sorry, um, um, a brain vacation. So if, for example, I know somebody's come back from a vacation or a holiday or a wedding or whatever it may be, I'll ask them to go and drag and drop some pictures onto our virtual whiteboard that's there for the team. And then at the, the next team meeting, we start off with those photographs and we listen to that person's narration of, of what that was. And so I'll make sure that all the team members over the course of a, of a month or two have an opportunity to do that. And that just all it does is reduce that perceived distance. distance. Lovely. Uh, talking of what one values most, tell us what achievement means to you, Jill. I honestly don't know. I can only answer in my personal case. Absolutely. Like, That's what I mean what to I, you. Yes. Yes. So if I'm sitting in a chair at some point, 
in my life and I feel a sense of achievement, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? And I think for me, the only answer I can give you is a sort of deep sense of comfort with regard to who I am, where I am in this world, and a kind of a freedom and ease of movement within that world, and a kind of sense of being, uh, a kind of contentment. I don't like necessarily the word happiness. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of overused and, and can mean too many, too many different things, yeah. but a definite sense of contentment in my ability to just be wherever I am, wherever in the world, with whoever I am. For me, and now as I'm talking out loud, I can see actually it's kind of related to an interculturalist. Yeah, you know? it is indeed. Um, so I like, I really do enjoy the discomfort that comes from visiting new places and exploring new things and being curious about different cultures. And I think that it will take me probably many lifetimes to get to a point where I would have had the chance and the opportunity to experience all of them. Yeah. <laughs> I think it would take me many lifetimes just to experience all the ones in India. So if we start to <laughs> that's think, true. If we start to think about the whole world, it becomes even a, a larger, a larger ask. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's what achievement means for me. Lovely, lovely. Thank you so much, uh, Jill, for being for for really talking to us so honestly about your experiences. And um, thank you for your insights and your thoughts. Thanks for being on the show, Jill. It was lovely having you. It was lovely. I, I saw your questions and I was so excited to come in and, and talk to you today. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to share your thoughts and feedback in the comment section. Do rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like the episode. Subscribe or hit follow Voice of Achievers on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Hubhopper, Spotify, GeoSavan, Ghana or wherever you get your podcasts from. Send us an email on editor at voiceofachievers.com or find us on voiceofachievers.com to share guest suggestions or topics that you'd like us to cover. Don't forget to tune in next week again. Voice of Achievers on EP Log Media.